Thank you for tuning into our podcast, History's Top 3, brought to you by the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. In this show, we will discuss and debate some of the key turning points, trends, and major figures of world history. Our goal is to explore the varied landscapes and seascapes of the past in the hopes of shedding some light on the way the present world came to be. In our studio today are our three co-hosts, Professor Thomas Burgess, Lieutenant Terrence Viernes, and myself, Captain Bob Q. All of us are instructors and lifelong students of history. In this new season of the Top 3, each of us will present our top choice for today's theme. We will then discuss how we made our choices and why we believe they deserve a place in the Top 3. We invite you to share your thoughts and engage in the discussion. Thomas, would you like to start us off? Yeah, thanks, Bob. Uh, My choice is Mustafa Kemal, who began his career as a young and brilliant military officer serving the Ottoman Empire. This was in the empire's last days when it was fighting a series of losing wars against its European neighbors, such as Greece and Serbia. Then in 1914, the Turks made the fateful decision of siding with Germany in World War I, hoping to regain lost territories. Instead, the Turks were soundly defeated. With the British occupying Istanbul, the last Ottoman sultan was forced to sign the Treaty of Severus, which not only stripped the Turks of their empire, It also divided up most of what is now Turkey between the Greeks, French, and Italians. At this point, Mustafa Kemal rallied Turkish resistance not only to the foreign occupiers, but he also came out in open rebellion against his own sultan, whom he considered a traitor and sellout. By 1923, under his command, the Turks expelled all the European powers and regained control of what is now Turkey. But Kemal didn't stop there. Hailed as a national hero, he was able to ram through a series of reforms from above. He abolished the Ottoman Empire and Caliphate. He secularized the schools and courts. Under his leadership, Turkey outlawed polygamy, developed a new alphabet, and fought illiteracy. It promoted female education and women's rights. It also developed a modern railway system which encouraged industrialization and rapid economic development. Kemal felt all these reforms were necessary to strengthen the Turkish people and make them, in his eyes at least, more civilized. After winning the military struggle against the West and the political struggle against the last sultan, Kemal now waged something of a cultural war against traditional Turkish society. He proclaimed, the Turkish Republic cannot be a country of sheikhs, dervishes, and disciples. Kemal was no saint, but at least he wasn't involved in the Turks' genocidal campaign against the Armenians during World War I. However, he executed hundreds of political opponents, crushed a Kurdish rebellion with great cruelty, and expelled a million Greeks. I saw the aftereffects of this firsthand when I visited Turkey a few years ago and the small city of Ivalik, which was ethnically cleansed of its Greek population in the early 20s. But given that many nationalist figures have tended to be rather amoral anyway, and while there's no reason to endorse the violence that accompanied Kemal's revolution from above, it is hard to deny the huge legacy Kemal left behind. As a result of his singular vision, Turkey turned its back on its Ottoman past and embraced a new identity, culture, and way of living. And so if we're impressed by nationalists who are effective in their pursuit of national sovereignty, then Kamal should be considered one of the most impressive ones of all time. I mean, I'm certainly impressed. This guy took Turkey through a pretty transformative period through his own vision, through his own leadership. But I 
have to ask the question, what's the ultimate end game for a man like Kamal? What's his legacy today? He's had a huge legacy. Uh, after his death in the late 1930s, his successors carried on his policies, which became known as Kamalism. And arguably, up until the 1990s, it was the dominant sort of ruling credo or philosophy of the Turkish state. And only recently in the era of Recep Erdogan has there been some sort of new direction taken in Turkish politics, which in some ways repudiates the Kemalist legacy. But, but there are few nationalist figures who have had such a long shadow over their own people. Some, some nationalists have great ideas, but they don't translate into reality, so to speak. Um, but he was a deeply polarizing figure, even today, uh, that's also the case. Um, I mean, for some Muslims, he was thought of as a heretic. Uh, they deeply regret that he abolished the caliphate, that he moved away from Sharia law, and they thought of him as a sort of a mino, Muslim in name only. Okay. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> oh, Thomas, no. you, you mentioned that Kamal is a deeply polarizing figure, and I'm fascinated by this idea of a culture war that you mentioned. How much did this culture war translate into why he's so polarizing? How did that culture war manifest? Well, he just took the war against his own people, against their most sacred objects, like, for example, their clothing. The, a key component of the Turkish national costume was the fez, which was a form of headwear worn by almost all Turkish males of the 19th century. Even Kemal himself wore the fez for most of his early life, but then he decided, once in power, that the fez had to go. He said, quote, the Fez sat on our heads as a sign of ignorance, of fanaticism, of hatred to progress and civilization. Wow. Those are strong words. He, he goes on to say it was necessary, quote, to adopt in its place the hat, the customary headdress of the whole civilized world. So this was how far Kemal was willing to take his cultural revolution and even to imprison and execute Turkish men who refused to give up the Fez. So I think this points to a larger sort of reality about nationalism in general is that no one can question Kemal's nationalist credentials. He loved his people and he said so many times, but with love there is sometimes the flip side, which is frustration and resentment, even sometimes disgust. In this case, it was disgust with this object of what he thought was backwardness and ignorance that sat on Turkish men's hat, heads and had to be eradicated, the fez. So, and again, this is a general point about nationalism, which is often simply ignored in the scholarship and in general, that there is this flip side of nationalism, that uh, one of resentment. In fact, Ben Anderson's book that we're all going to talk about eventually today, you know, he calls it imagined communities. He could also just, just as easily call it resented communities. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's fascinating. I had no idea that there was so much baggage behind the fez. Terrence, would you like to go next? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little hard to follow after that spicy take. <laughs> but you know, when thinking about anti-colonial nationalists, there's a tendency to link them with revolutions that often translate into a violent overthrow of the old regime. Uh, many narratives of resistance in Latin America, Africa, and Asia are told along these lines. Um, but what if there's a way to inspire nationalist sentiment without resorting to militant and destructive means? And it's this is what makes Dr. Jose Rizal of the Philippines such an impressive anti-colonial nationalist. 
In the closing years of the 19th century, he used nonviolent means to fight for a world in which Filipinos are rightfully afforded a sense of national dignity and political agency within the Spanish Empire, not apart from it. Born in June 19, 1861, into an elite mestizo family, mestizo meaning of mixed Spanish ancestry, Rizal enjoyed the privileges of an advanced secular and religious education. However, his background did not make him and his family immune to the injustices that the Spanish authorities inflicted upon Filipinos. Rizal's early exposure to these imperial and colonial attitudes strongly motivated his political activism, especially during his studies in Europe. Far away from colonial censors, he wrote two scathing novels deeply critical of Spanish rule in the Philippines, Noli Metangere and El Filibusterismo. The duology follows the life of Crisostomo Ibarra, a European educated and virtuous young Filipino man who, upon returning to the Philippines, learns for himself the widespread and abject cruelty of colonial authorities. As the story unfolds, Ibarra adopts an increasingly radical and revolutionary attitude. The novels received critical acclaim in many liberal circles in Europe, even Spain itself. Many Filipinos reading this saw their own political and national consciousness maturing in parallel with Ibarra. The books also inspired Filipinos to begin organizing movements towards independence. The Katipunan, a group that espoused armed revolution to expel Spain, claim Rizal and his works guided their ideology. His literary work and reform-minded advocacy ultimately resulted in his imprisonment, exile, and execution on December 30, 1896. Ironically, the reasons for his execution, which were accusations of sedition, treason, and fomenting revolution, were drummed up, or at the very least, deeply misconstrued. More than anything, Rizal wanted reform, not revolution. In the end, his contributions to modern Filipino history are manifold. There is a direct causal link between him and eventual Philippine independence from Spain, and arguably more important was how his writings crystallized a national identity that revolves around resistance to Spanish rule, promotion of innate Filipino virtues and values, and political self-determination. He equipped Filipinos with a language to define themselves organically against another, which was the Spaniards. Terence, what's most interesting to me is that, at least the beginning, Rizal believes in creating a Filipino national consciousness, but not necessarily a Filipino state. Uh, this is actually an interesting comparison to the Ottoman Empire that Thomas just talked about, and this whole idea, very common in the pre-modern world, of composite empires, where you have multiple nations, multiple peoples, but within one empire, one government. Uh, this is an idea, however, that's already quickly starting to lose its relevance by the late 1800s. How did Rizal eventually feel about independence and the independence movements he inspired, uh, not just this idea of a national identity, but without necessarily independence? Yeah, yeah, great question. It's really complicated because Rizal didn't actually call for armed revolution to bring about independence. He wanted top-down social political reform in the Philippines. Uh, he had such faith in the transformative power of education that it motivated him to promote nonviolence as the best way to affect change. Education and civilization would make Filipinos worthy peers to the Spaniards, so freedom could be earned through enlightenment. That's the logic. Without this transformation, independence would be short-lived because Filipinos would simply exchange one set of tyrants for another. So it sounds like Rizal was calling for, and those he influenced as well afterwards, were calling for sort of a value-based sort of cultural identity. We are Filipinos. We believe in these values together rather than something based strictly on language or ethnicity or something like that. 
Is that a correct way of looking at this? That's my first question. Yeah, no, I think that is actually 100% fair to say that Rizal and his disciples were keen on leaning into this very values-based kind of nationalism for the Philippines. Because if you look at it geographically and culturally, you're looking at 7,000 plus islands, you're looking at a very diverse population, and it's going to be very difficult to string along a very narrow kind of nationalism based on a common language. There are hundreds of dialects there. A common religion. There is Christianity and Catholicism specifically in the north, Islam in the south. How are you going to bridge that gap, you know, considering all the, all the problems it's had historically, right? Uh, and so this value-based nationalism is absolutely the way. It is the coalescing a resistance to Spanish authority, coalescing around political autonomy, or at least some kind of agency. Oh, it's so interesting, Terrence. So I guess my follow-up question is these values that all Filipinos are supposed to embrace, is it fair to characterize them as in some ways Western-based values, or is that unfair? No, I think that's 100% fair. I certainly think that the principles or the values that Rizal is fighting for and promoting for the Filipinos to adopt are definitely in line with what European, the traditions of European liberalism and political autonomy, or at least political agency. It doesn't preclude Filipinos from, of course, you know, abandoning all the things that make them uniquely so, the unique cultures, the regional uh, expressions there, right? But at the very least, they are, should be equipped with the language for political organization, for recognizing that they do have innate value and human rights. So interesting. Early example of hybridity, marrying Filipino culture and dress and language and Filipino-ness with this sort of Western civilizational paradigm. How about Rizal's legacy, Terrence? The beautiful thing for me, uh, as far as his legacy goes, is that he firmly set the country on the path towards independence, uh, largely by mobilizing local support, but also winning allies in Congress, U.S. Congress, right? His final poem, Mi Ultimo Adios, was read by Representative Henry Cooper, a Republican from Wisconsin, during the first session of the 57th Congress in 1902, as representatives debated a bill to grant Filipinos a broader set of freedoms. After passionately delivering the poem, Cooper exclaimed, Pirates, barbarians, savages, incapable of civilization, how many of the civilized Caucasian slanderers of Rizal's race could ever be capable of thoughts like these, which, on the awful night as he sat alone amid silence, unbroken, save by the rustling of the black plumes of the death angel at his side, poured from the soul of the martyred Filipino, searched the long and bloody roll of the world's martyred dead, and where, on what soil, under what sky, did tyranny ever claim a nobler victim? Those are strong words. That's almost as strong as uh, Kamal's words about the Fez. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really, really beautiful. Super poetic. And so, in Cooper's view, Rizal's words directly influenced American congressmen that day to end debate, vote, and pass the Philippine Organic Act of 1902, a law that ultimately resulted in much of the reforms Rizal fought for during his life. And that's a disestablishment of the Roman Catholic Church, representatives in the U.S. Congress, a Bill of Rights, and even establishing an elected Filipino National Assembly.
my pick is Toussaint Louverture, uh, sometimes called the Black Napoleon, who was a key figure in the Haitian Revolution, which, of course, birthed the second ever sovereign state and republic in the Western Hemisphere. Now, Louverture was born enslaved in what was then called Saint-Domingue, a colony of France, what we now know today as Haiti. Uh, he was eventually freed and became instrumental in the Haitian Revolution. This was a revolution with very complex origins. You had the aftershocks of the French Revolution, the rhetoric of equal rights for all men, uh, the poor treatment of slaves on Saint-Domingue, but also the discriminatory treatment of free blacks, uh, which really illustrates that this was a complex society, highly stratified, with extremely different animosities and interests from group to group. And then on top of all of that, you overlay the tensions between royalists and republicans from the revolution. This really makes his achievement all the more significant. Uh, he becomes one of several leaders in the early phases of the conflict, proves to be an outstanding military commander, and through a series of Game of Thrones-worthy maneuvers, uh, eventually becomes the rebellion's overall leader, and by 1801, the de facto leader of an independent Haiti. That's the same year that the new constitution of Haiti is established. In Article 3, it says very plainly, there cannot exist slaves in Saint-Domingue. Servitude is forever abolished. All men are born, live, and die free and French. Which I think captures this very interesting tension. Louverture was very proud to be French, but his actions helped forge the beginnings of a Haitian national identity out of what had been an extremely divided society. Uh, he was a leader, too, not just on the battlefield and off it. He believed that economic restoration, rebuilding Haiti, was important if it ever wanted to have genuine autonomy. Uh, so he really believed in nation building in multiple senses. This was eventually cut short by a French expedition to retake the island, uh, but that also cemented his impact. Uh, the expedition was led by Napoleon's own brother-in-law. It had secret instructions to reimpose slavery, and Louverture was at the forefront of this resistance. Uh, the soil bathed of our sweat must not furnish our enemies with the smallest sustenance, he said. Tear up the roads with shot. Throw corpses and horses into all the foundations. Burn and annihilate everything in order that all those who have come to reduce us to slavery may have before their eyes the image of the hell which they deserve. So very strong words. Uh, he was eventually captured uh, under somewhat duplicitous circumstances. He was deported to France and eventually will die in captivity there. Uh, but by then, the French expedition was already in the ropes, and it will eventually be defeated. Haiti will remain independent. And this actually has a huge impact on the future development of the United States. Napoleon had been intent on reclaiming and reestablishing a French empire in North America centered on Louisiana. But before he can do that, uh, he has to do this expedition in Haiti, and the revolution and resistance there prevents him from achieving those goals, which ultimately leads to the Louisiana Purchase and the continued expansion of the American Republic. Uh, so Louverture really has a profound impact on the history of two nations, which is why I think he deserves a spot on this list. But the problem for me is that he's such a transformative figure, but at the same time, very contradictory in a sense, where he's fighting for all this freedom, but at the same time, he assigns himself as a governor for life. And I feel like that's such a contradiction with the values espoused by the French Revolution. So, you know, how does that balance with the ideas of fraternité, égalité, and liberté? 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And we've captured this idea already that there's a lot of tensions in many of the nationalists we talk about. Now, I'll say that you can believe in liberal nationalism and nationalism in general, uh, but being a nationalist doesn't necessarily mean being a Republican. Right? Uh, you can believe in some of these ideals. And I think the comparison to Napoleon is, is especially apt here. Right? Napoleon believes in some of these ideals, uh, but also believes that he is necessary. He's necessary to have a strong ruler to really implement them. Um, and the belief in the need for a strong ruler for Haiti uh, is absolutely one that Louverture has, right? which is almost comparable to the Napoleonic belief that France, in order to survive, to, pers to preserve the revolution, uh, to preserve France, needs a strong ruler, a consul, an emperor. Yeah, one of the more fascinating components of the story is, as you describe it, sort of this Game of Thrones situation, so many moving pieces, and that almost invites tragedy, in this case, the, the tragic end of our main character here. Is that a fair assessment? Would you, would you also call him a tragic figure or not? Oh, Louverture is absolutely a tragic figure. Uh, and I think there's a number of reasons for this. You know, first off, he never really lives to see what he had been working for, a truly independent Haiti, because he dies uh, midway through the uh, revolution and the, the fight against the French. But I, I like that you mentioned Game of Thrones because part of Game of Thrones is betrayal, right? It's all about betrayal. And Louverture is betrayed in so many ways. Uh, it, he, in one sense, he is literally betrayed. Uh, he's captured under duplicitous circumstances. But then in a sense, his dream for Haiti is also betrayed because part of his dream is a Haiti that is not just independent, uh, but autonomous, able to be successful, particularly economically. This was a huge part of his belief that in order to be able to be fully independent and take its place among other nations, it needed to be economically self-sufficient. And the aftermath of the revolution, uh, in the aftermath, there were all of these reparations and indemnities put upon the new Haitian Republic that really crippled its economy. And even to this day, there's arguments that you're still seeing the aftershocks of this, that Haiti was never able to properly develop because of the economic impact uh, that the Western nations imposed upon Haiti in the aftermath of the revolution. So this really key part of his dream, that Haiti would not just be independent, but economically autonomous and prosperous, never really came to pass. And then his successors didn't really follow in his footsteps, did, did they? I mean... His successors did not follow in his footsteps at all. Uh, Dessalines, who succeeded him, became the leader of Haiti afterwards, is you know, almost famous for his cruelty. Uh, not to say that Toussaint Louverture was ever a saint, but uh, definitely does not sustain the dream that he had. Yeah, now that we've all talked about our choices, I feel like we have to address the Benedict Anderson-sized elephant in the room. Uh, you really can't talk about nationalism without mentioning Anderson. Thomas, I know you mentioned him already. Uh, I talked about how Louverture was nation-building in both senses, right? That he was trying to construct this imagined community that Anderson was talking about. Thomas, do you want to talk a little bit about what exactly Benedict Anderson was, was discussing and proposing uh, and kind of how he fits or doesn't fit what we discussed today? Yeah, I mean, he wrote a book in the 1980s that was hugely influential and sparked this academic debate that is in some ways still with us today and many people responding to him with their own studies of nationalism as a global phenomenon. Um, but as you point out, yeah, he focuses on this idea that nations are actually imagined, they're communities um, that are in some ways invisible and in that we can never actually see all the people within our communities. We just know of their existence by reading the newspaper or things like that, keeping abreast of, of national events. 
While his theories have definite application and relevance, I think they're limited. I don't think they apply to all places everywhere, which I guess is what you would expect for a study that has global pretensions. You know, he's trying to explain, roll out a global theory of nationalism. It doesn't always stand up everywhere in the world. If you look at Estonia, for example, it seems to fit very well because the Estonians have been ruled over by the Swedes, the Russians, the the German Teutonic Knights for centuries, and then suddenly in the 19th century discovered their ethnicity, discovered that they were people who spoke the same language and maybe deserved a state, that they had certain cultural uh, characteristics in common. Um, and this was all through the process that Anderson and others describe of urbanization and the spread of literacy and so forth, and the emergence of an intelligentsia that lead the way in discovering this ethnicity. But if you look at other parts of the world, like in Africa, you have dozens of countries where there's no one single ethnicity. There are dozens, literally. And in fact, the nationalists who assume power after the defeat of colonialism consistently disparage ethnicity. They call it tribalism. That's like a dirty word. We want to overcome ethnicity, tribalism, to build a national identity which transcends these this remarkable diversity within a country like Nigeria. We have a hundred different ethnic groups, different languages, religions, etc. So how do we transcend that is the question that is often asked by nationalists. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because you know you're you're really situating Anderson within a specific time and a specific location almost. You know, it's something that seems like it works very well when you're talking about the great age of nationalism in the late eighteen hundreds in Europe. Uh, and so it's actually kind of interesting to me that for all of us, we pretty much didn't pick people who come from that specific time period and location. Um, so it's interesting the ways in which, you know, we still think that Anderson kind of uh, applies. Uh, all of us have talked about the nation building and the imagining of a new national identity for each of our figures, but also the ways in which they don't really apply. Terrence, how do you feel like Resolve fits or doesn't fit within Anderson's paradigm? No, I actually think he fits very cleanly into it. And the the element of Anderson's like you know uh, work that I want to highlight is his ideas on print nationalism. The how print oh, culture is how this national identity forms in the very first place. And when you when you think about it, you know these the Filipinos in the late eighteen hundreds are certainly not a uh, people who have a strong print culture. They they are not. There are not a lot of books or articles or any such things written in the native language or even the native dialects uh, across this massive archipelago. But you know, come in Rizal, come in the propaganda movement, which is really not propaganda in the bad sense, but propaganda as in a, a movement to propagate the national message of hey, we are Filipinos being Filipino. That becomes more popular and widespread, and then suddenly you have a country that is able to access these new ideas that were once barred from them by Spanish friars and Spanish colonials. And so it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how Anderson's theory, in that sense, plays out almost perfectly, like 100%. And through the writings of some expats in Europe, an entire nation is electrified and or motivated to fight against uh, a centuries-long oppression. That's interesting because I can make an argument that that specific aspect, the print media proliferation, does not really apply in Haiti. You know, you're talking about enslaved Africans, many of whom are illiterate, right? Um, and the Haitian example is actually really interesting and very unique, perhaps of any example, because you're talking about a people who 
come from Africa, often from various different ethnic groups. The only thing they share in common is that they were all captured uh, and enslaved and sent to this one place, Haiti. Uh, so it's an extremely divided place, and it is a place of people who have all fundamentally at some level been dispossessed and displaced. Uh, so again, you know, I, th I think that's part of the reason why Louverture's success is so amazing, right? That you're talking about probably one of the least likely people, the most difficult demographics to try and build a national identity out of. Uh, and he was able to get that process started. So um, very interesting. Well, it came from a common sense of injustice. These people have been enslaved or if not ex enslaved, exploited. And that often is a key ingredient for nationalism as well. If I could just pile on to Ben Anderson just one more time, is that I mean, he, by his own admission, he doesn't really care about nationalist thought. As far as him, the one big idea of nationalists is let's have our own state. But what comes after independence? In so many countries, especially of the 20th century that gained their independence, the real work began at independence, something called right. nation building. In Swahili, it's called Kujenga Taifa. It was the national anthem or the slogan for for years, recognizing that we have a long way to go to develop to be what we want to be, and that's nationalists for leading the charge in that development. I th you can see this maybe in some ways in Rizal's writing too, perhaps that that there's a work of there's a civil there's a civilizing project going on. Yeah, no, 100. percent There is the civilizing project of being exposed to uh, like Western knowledge, Western education, the you know embracing the sciences, leaving superstition behind, and whatnot. Uh, but as far as the nation-building process on the back end goes, I think the Filipino story is also very tragic because that never does come to pass, at least in the immediate lifetimes of a lot of these revolutionaries. Because as soon as the Philippines slips away from Spanish control, it's very rapidly transitioning under American control. And that kind of that, that movement or that desire for independence is delayed or incubated, maybe, let's say, by American governance. And so that, that hard work of nation building isn't so much imposed upon or at least placed upon the shoulders of Filipinos right away. It is we're put on training wheels by the Americans for quite a while. There's a really interesting dynamic there, right, which is are you able, is a nation able to do that on its own or does a nation need those training wheels? There's this interesting dynamic here where, you know, the Filipinos are trying to modernize and civilize, at least according to Rizal, within the confines of the Spanish Empire. Louverture, at first, seems like he's happy existing within the confines of the French Empire. Oh, yeah. Is that a desire for training wheels? What What is that exactly? Uh, maybe in a very, like, condemning or damning kind of assessment, maybe it's a failure of imagination. Maybe there is there the political understanding of the time is still unable to imagine a world beyond that colonial or at least the, the context of empire, right? It's being something completely separate and independent in this world full of great powers. That's, that's a tough bargain. Well, Terrence, you've definitely given us a lot to think about. Uh, and as always, we'd love to hear what you, the listeners, think. Do you agree with our choices? Do you think there's someone who should have made the list who did not? Let us know what you think. As always, there's plenty more to debate on this subject, but we'll save that for a round of drinks between friends. From all of us here at the U.S. Naval Academy, particularly at the History Department, thank you for tuning in. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland.
If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History. And our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.